Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 9, Numbers chapters 7 and 8. Numbers chapter 7 is one of the longest chapters in the Torah, some 89 verses. And it's also one of the most repetitive chapters in all the Torah, which you're going to see as we read it together. So we're going to move through this chapter rather quickly. Now, as a frame of reference, we know from the dates given in the Torah itself that everything that started happening, beginning at Exodus 40, then through all the book of Leviticus, and up to where we are right now, in number 7, all happened in a very short period of time. These events all occur in a time frame beginning on the first day of the first month of the second year after they left Egypt and ending on the 20th day of the second month of the second year. In other words, you're looking at about a 50-day period from Exodus 40 all the way through Leviticus to where we are now in Numbers. Now we know that the building of the tabernacle was completed on the first day of the first, first month of the second year. We know that the ordination of the priests was completed by the eighth day of that first month. And we know that the census of the Israelites and then yet another census that was only of the Levites began on the second day of the second month of the second year. We know that the cloud moved and so the camp was struck and Israel began their journey from Mount Sinai on the 20th day of the second month. Now exactly where the events of Numbers chapter 7 fall within that 50-day period, we can't precisely pinpoint. Although there are a handful of rabbinical opinions about it that we really don't need to get into tonight. So open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 7, which is page 154 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. And we're going to do a lot of reading here. And I'm going to talk fast. On the day Moshe finished putting up the tabernacle, he anointed and consecrated it, all of its furnishings, and the altar with its utensils. After anointing and consecrating them, the leaders of Israel, who were heads of their father's clans, made an offering. These were the tribal leaders, in charge of those who counted in the census. They brought their offering before Adonai, six covered wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two liters and for each ox, presented them in front of the tabernacle. And Adonai said to Moses, Receive these from them. They are to be used for the service in the tent of meeting. Give them to the Levites, to each as needed for his duties. So Moses took the wagons and ox and gave them to the Levites. He gave two wagons and four oxen to the descendants of Gershon, in keeping with the needs of their duties. Four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the descendants of Merari, in keeping with the needs of their duties, directed by Ithmar, the son of Aharon, the priest. But to the descendants of Kahat he gave none because their duties involved the holy articles which they carried on their own shoulders. Now, the leaders brought the offering for dedicating the altar on the day it was anointed. The leaders brought their offering before the altar. And Adonai said to Moses, they are to present their offerings to dedicate the altar, each leader on his own day. Now, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, from the tribe of Judah, presented his offering on the first day. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels and one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year's burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nachshon, 
the son of Aminadav. Now on the second day, Natanel, the son of Tzwar, the leader of Yisachar, presented his offering. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs. In their first year, this was the offering of Nathanel, the son of Tzuar. On the third day, Eliav, the son of Halon, leader of Zebulun, presented his offering. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Eliav, the son of Helon. On the fourth day, Elatsur, the son of Shedur, leader of the descendants of Reuben. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil, one grain, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Elitzur, the son of Shidur. On the fifth day was Shlumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai, the leader of the descendants of Simeon. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour and mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense. One young bull, one ram, one male lamb. In its first year as a bird offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Shlumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. On the sixth day was Esoph, the son of Dewel, leader of the descendants of Gad. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a bird offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in the first year. This was the offering of Elyasaf, the son of Dewel. Now on the seventh day was Elishama the son of Amahud, the leader of the descendants of Ephraim. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour with olive oil for grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering. For the sacrifice, peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Elishamah, the son of Amahud. On the eighth day was Gamliel, the son of Padatsur, leader of the descendants of Manasseh. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels, full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Gamliel, the son of Padatsur. On the ninth day was Aphidan, the son of Gidoni, leader of the descendants of Benjamin. He offered a silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a bird offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Avidan, the son of Gidoni. On the tenth day was Achiezer, the son of Amishadai, leader of the descendants of Dan. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering. 
one gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year is a bird offering. One male goat is a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs. In the first year, this was the offering of Achiezer, the son of Amishadai. On the eleventh day was Pagiel, the son of Ochran, the leader of the descendants of Asher. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering. One gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year is a burnt offering, one male goat is a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Pagiel, the son of Ochran. On the twelfth day was Akirah, the son of Anan leader of the descendants of Naphtali. He offered one silver dish weighing 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, both full of fine flour mixed with olive oil for grain offering, one gold pan of 10 shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one male goat as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Akhirah, the son of Anan. This was the offering for dedicating the altar, which was given by the leaders of Israel on the day of its anointing. Twelve silver dishes, twelve silver basins, twelve gold pans. Each silver dish weighed 130 shekels, each basin 70. All the silver of the vessels weighed 2,400 shekels. The twelve gold pans full of incense weighed ten shekels apiece. All the gold of the pans weighed 120 shekels. The livestock for the burnt offering consisted of twelve bulls, twelve rams, twelve male lambs in their first year with their grain offering. There were twelve male goats for a sin offering. The livestock for the sacrifice of peace offerings consisted of twenty-four bulls, sixty rams, sixty male goats, sixty male lambs in their first year. This was the offering for dedicating the altar after it had been anointed. When Moses went into the tent of meeting in order to speak with Adonai, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the ark cover on the ark of the testimony for, from between the two cherubim, cherubim. From there he spoke to him. Okay. My lips are falling off here. Not enough. From a 30,000 foot view, what we're witnessing are some of the final preparations necessary to make the operation of the priesthood and God's earthly dwelling place complete. That's what's happening here. Okay. From a little narrower view, what we're seeing is the leader of each of the 12 tribes of Israel bringing their offering in turn to the Lord, beginning with the tribe of Judah, the head man of each tribe, brought their tribe's gift to the tabernacle, one tribe per day, for a total of 12 days. Now, the first gift discussed before we read of what each tribe brought separately was a communal gift. That is, it was given to the tabernacle as a common gift from the entire congregation of Israel's leaders. And it consisted of six large wagons or carts, each with two oxen for pulling it. Now, these carts were to be given to the specific Levite clans that were in charge of transporting the various large pieces of the tabernacle. Now, the clan of Merari was given four of the wagons. The clan of Gershon received two because it was Merari's duty to transport those heavy wooden planks that formed the load-bearing structure of that sacred tent. So they needed more carts than did Gershon, who was to move the thick curtains that formed the door of the tent. Now, verse 9 explains why the highest ranked of all the clans of the Levites, the clan of Kahat, did not receive any carts. Because they were to carry the most precious Ark of the Covenant, And the Ark of the Covenant was to be carried on the shoulders of those Levites, not putting it in an ox cart. But apparently that instruction, as were so many other of the laws given on Mount Sinai, not long into the future, became ignored by Israel's leadership, and it brought with it the promised consequences. We find an incident 
in 1 Chronicles 13, when King David, King David, called for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to where he was, and a fellow named Usah was given that task. Let's read that incident together. Everybody turn to 1 Chronicles 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's a short one. If you've got a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1166. 1 Chronicles, chapter 13. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. Then David said to the entire assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it's the will of Adonai our God, let's send messengers to the rest of our kinsmen in the land of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites in their cities with surrounding open land, asking them to join us. And then let's bring back the ark of our God to ourselves, since we didn't go after it when Shaul was king. The whole assembly said they would do this, for in the view of all the people it seemed right. So David summoned all of Israel to come together from Shechor in Egypt all the way to the entrance of Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiryat Yarim. David went up with all Israel to Baalah, that is Kiryat Yarim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, Adonai, who is enthroned above the cherubim bearing the name. Now they sent the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Avinadav with Usah and Achio, the sons of Avinadav, driving that cart. David and all Israel celebrated in the presence of God with all their strength, with songs, lyres, lutes, tambourine, cymbals, and trumpets. And when they arrived at Kidon's threshing floor, the oxen stumbled. And Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. But Adonai's anger blazed up against Uzzah and struck him down because he had put out his hand to touch the ark so that he died there before God. It upset David that Adonai had broken out against Uzzah. That place has been called Peretz Uzzah, breaking out of Uzzah ever since. That day God frightened David and he asked, How can I bring the ark of Adonai to me? So David didn't bring the ark of Adonai into the city of David. Rather, David carried it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gitti. The ark of Adonai stayed with the family of Obed-Edom the Gitti in his house for three months. And Adonai blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all he had. Now, What's interesting, lots interesting, but what's interesting is that we read of the Hebrews transporting the ark in an ox cart, not on the shoulders of the Levites. Great Jewish sages have said for ages that Uzzah was not killed for just one infraction, touching that ark, but for two, touching the ark and transporting it in a cart. That's why it speaks about the Lord's anger burning so greatly. And in fact, this whole thing was David's fault. All right, for his personal negligence in allowing such a thing to occur. Okay, we've got a lot of chapters here. We're going to get back to Numbers. Hidden in Numbers 7, verse 10, is something else that's pretty informative. It says that these 12 tribal chieftains of Israel brought their dedication offering for the altar. Now, what makes this interesting is that the Hebrew word that's used here in Numbers 7, the word that's usually translated as dedication offering is Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Yep, the same word as used for the holiday we celebrate in the fall, Hanukkah to celebrate the rededication of the temple to Jehovah after it had been taken over by the Syrians and made into a temple to Zeus for about three years. To me, it's quite interesting that the first use of Hanukkah is to initiate the dwelling place of God into operation. 
birthday, right here in Numbers. The second use of Hanukkah in Scripture was to reinitiate the dwelling place of God back into operation after the governor of Syria, Antiochus Epiphanes, had made the priesthood defunct for a few years. It, it makes it all the more appropriate in my book that we ought to make good and proper use of Hanukkah as an occasion to celebrate the birth of the one who made us, Yeshua's followers, to be the new operational dwelling place of God. What's also interesting is that the way the word Hanukkah is used in number 7 puts a little finer point on what the word means. Now, when we see the word, the use of the word Hanukkah, it really means more of an offering of initiation than dedication. Okay. The Hanukkah offering is meant to be an offering that's like a catalyst. Okay. It's the ribbon cutting ceremony. Okay. That says, open for business. Okay. On the other hand, when we see a true dedication offering, in which something is consecrated, meaning ceremonial, ceremonially set apart for God, the ritual always involves being anointed with oil. And we don't find anointing of oil with the bringing of this Hanukkah offering here in Numbers, nor do we find in the Hanukkah ceremony initiating the use of the temple once again for worshiping Jehovah during the Maccabee rebellion. And of course, in initializing our walk with Yeshua, there is but an offering of ourselves, usually symbolized by immersion, baptism. But there is no call for a new follower, new follower to be anointed with oil in order to begin his service to Jehovah. So, like so much else in the New Testament, we find that the entire concept and purpose and use of Hanukkah began in the Old Testament. And this was just brought forward into the New Testament in yet a higher and fuller meaning and personified in Jesus Christ. Now, the other thing we shouldn't overlook is that it was the tribe of Judah from whom came Christ that was the first to present their Hanukkah offering. And what we find is that the gifts that all 12 tribes present are exactly identical. And that's the reason for all the repetition in this chapter. Every tribe was shown and recorded to have given exactly the same things, the same amounts, the same quality. And as we read for 12 consecutive passages, each tribe's Hanukkah offering was a silver bowl or silver basin, each filled with semolina flour with oil mixed in, which is technically a mincha offering. A golden spoon or ladle filled with incense, one bowl, one mature ram, one yearling lamb, which is for the olah offering, one male goat for the hatat, Offering and two oxen, five male rams, five male goats, five yearling lambs for the shlamim offering. Now, if the Hebrew names of those various types of offerings are kind of unfamiliar to you, all right, you need to go back and review our study of Leviticus because we explored every one of those very extensively. Now, the point is that this list is what every tribal leader presented to the sanctuary. One tribe per day for 12 consecutive days brought this specified offering. Now, I see great significance in this. Because just as anyone who comes to the Lord for atonement and salvation must offer the same thing, himself, herself, nothing less and nothing more. So it is with this Hanukkah offering. The 12 tribes were not at all equal <laughs> in population, in authority, in status, in wealth, but it didn't matter. The offering had to be the same for every one of them. Now, the Hebrew sages say something else pretty provocative. 
about all this, and I'll tell you straight up, I have no idea whether they're correct or not, but I, I want to pass it along to you. The fact is that at least one Sabbath had to occur during a, this 12-day span of Hanukkah offerings. And mathematically, there could have been two. The rabbis say that the offering by the chieftain of the tribe of Judah, which was, was the first one that was given, was given on the first day of the week. Okay. On the second day, Issachar gave the offering. Third, it was Zebulun, and so on and so forth, until we get to the seventh day, the Shabbat. And guess which tribe gave their offering on Shabbat? Ephraim. So the honor of being first went to Judah. The honor of giving their offering seventh and on the Shabbat was Ephraim. And it was these two tribes who eventually became the two surviving super tribes who absorbed all the other ones and even formed the two kingdoms called Ephraim and Judah after the death of King Solomon. It is Judah and Ephraim who in the Bible, in later chapters, later books rather, are called the two houses of Israel. Right? And we're going to find that in Ezekiel and in other places. Now whether it was on the Sabbath or not, I'll leave it up to you. But I can tell you that it would have been logical and customary for this to have begun on the first day of the week rather than just on some random day. Okay, and no matter how you look at it, the first to give their Hanukkah offering was Judah, the Messiah's tribe, and the seventh to give theirs was Ephraim. Right, this, this was not a coincidence. We're going to find Judah and Ephraim slowly and surely elevated above the other ten tribes right, as the Torah and the writings and the prophets that form the Old Testament proceed. Well, this chapter ends appropriately with an important piece of information. That when Moses met with God in the tent of meeting, it was from above the mercy seat, the kaporet in Hebrew, that is the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, um, and within the wings, the wings of the two forms of the two cherubim that were attached to kaporet, that the presence of God was that spoke to Moses. And just so we fully understand, the phrase, speak with him, referring to God speaking to Moses, is in Hebrew, dibar, dibar. And it, dibar means conversation. It means a conversation. It means a two-way conversation. All right? As opposed to an oracle, which is simply an announcement by God. All right? Now, Although I'm sure that often God will call Moses to this tent and simply issue an instruction, an edict, at least as often God would call Moses there and there was this full-blown conversation going on. Whoa. Between the two of them. Right. Moses had an honor that few men in history had. Tangible, audible conversation with the Lord God Almighty. And although we have that privilege to a degree as believers in the form of prayer, I can't really say it's quite the same thing. Okay. How often I've wished I could ask God a question and get a direct, audible answer. Maybe a nice memo. Now let me point out one other thing. That as Christians, we have tended to get wrong. Moses did not stand directly before the Ark of the Covenant in the sense that he was inside the Holy of Holies. Okay. This is an understanding that really is only kind of, well, in the recent past, has become clear to me. Nowhere does the Torah explain that Moses stood within the Holy of Holies. That is an assumption. It's an incorrect one. It comes from a common misconception of such biblical phrases as Moses stood before the Lord. 
Okay. While to us that sounds like it must mean that Moses' actual presence is in the Holy of Holies, standing right next to the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, what we have is Moses standing in the holy place next to the inner veil called the Paroket. Paroket. And he's merely facing towards the Ark. Standing before the Lord is a common idiomatic Hebrew expression in the Bible, and we find it applied to private individuals, even to the woman brought to the temple suspected of adultery, and it merely means that you come near to God's sanctuary, to where he dwells. Not inside of it, certainly not inside the Holy of Holies. Now, Hebrew sages and rabbis have always seen Moses as standing outside the veil. It's only Gentile Christians who have given it a different picture and have him standing directly before the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, despite that lovely song that says, as believers we're standing in the Holy of Holies, that's simply theologically and scripturally not sound. It is Jesus, Yeshua, the God-man, who stands in the Holy of Holies for us. As our mediator, our high priest, he could go in a place that not even Moses could stand. And that's another one of those things that makes Jesus more than Moses. Israel needed a mediator, Moses. We still need a mediator, Yeshua. Okay. That's why we're taught to pray to the Father in Jesus' name. We as Messiah's army of priests indeed standing within the holy place, that front room, which is the lesser chamber inside the sanctuary, which is, by the way, a very great honor indeed. Okay, But we're in no way perfected enough yet in these corrupted bodies to stand in that holiest place. Now, we find Moses is terribly anxious to actually see God, don't we? There's an episode where he says, oh God, I want to see you. And he asks of the Lord if that might not be possible. And the Lord complies to a small degree by hiding Moses in the cleft of a rock as he merely passes by. Point being... That if Moses saw the Lord nearly every day while standing there in the Holy of Holies, it hardly would be a need to him for him to see the Lord in yet another setting. It, It could not be more clear in the Torah that no one, not even the high priest, was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies and stand before the ark except once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Moses had to have a veil between he and the Lord, so great was the Lord's holiness. Thus, when the high priest was permitted entry on that one special day of the year, he had to carry with him burning incense so that the incense acted as sort of a veil that the high priest would not die from such close proximity to the extreme holiness of Yehovah. Let's move on to Numbers chapter 8. Numbers chapter 8. Page 157 in the complete Jewish Bible. Now Adonai said to Moses, Tell Aaron, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps are to cast their light forward in front of the menorah. And Aaron did this. He lit its lamp so as to give light in front of the menorah as Adonai had ordered Moses. Here is how the menorah was made. It was hammered gold from its base to its flowers, hammered work following the pattern that Adonai had shown Moses. This is how he made the menorah. And Adonai said to Moses, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Here's how you're to cleanse them. Sprinkle the purification water on them, have them shave their whole body with a razor, and have them wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then they are to take a young bull with its grain offering, which is to be fine flour mixed with olive oil, 
while you take another bull for a sin offering. You're to present the Levites in front of the tent of meeting and assemble the entire community of the people of Israel. You will present the Levites before Adonai. The people of Israel will lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron will offer the Levites before Adonai as a wave offering from the people of Israel so that they may do Adonai's service. Now the Levites will lay their hands on the heads of the bulls. And the one you will offer as a sin offering and the other one as a burnt offering to Adonai to make atonement for the Levites. You're to place the Levites before Aaron and his sons and offer them as a wave offering to Adonai. In this way you will separate the Levites from the people of Israel and the Levites will belong to me. And after that, the Levites will enter and do the service of the tent of meeting. You'll cleanse them and offer them as a wave offering because they are entirely given to me from among the people of Israel. I have taken them for myself in place of all those who came first out of the womb, that is, the firstborn males of the people of Israel. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both humans and animals. On the day I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I set them apart for myself. But I have taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and I have given the Levites to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service of the people of Israel in the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel so that no plague will fall on the people of Israel in consequence of their coming too close to the sanctuary. Now this is what Moses, Aaron, and the community of the people of Israel did to the Levites. The people of Israel acted in accordance with everything that Adonai had ordered Moses in regard to the Levites. Now the Levites purified themselves and they washed their clothes. Then Aaron offered them as a holy gift before Adonai and made atonement for them in order to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites came to do their service in the tent of meeting in front of Aaron and his sons and they acted in accordance with Adonai's orders to Moses in regard to the Levites. Adonai said to Moses, here are the instructions concerning the Levites. When they reach the age of 25, they're to begin performing their duties, serving in the tent of meeting. And when they reach the age of 50, they're to stop performing this work and not serve any longer. They will then assist their brothers who are performing their duties in the tent of meeting, but they themselves will not do any of the work. This is what you're to do with the Levites in regard to their duties. Now, chapter 8 deals with two things. The practical operation of the menorah, that great golden seven-branched lampstand right, that stood on the southern wall of the holy place. And of course, that was the first and lesser compartment as you first entered into the tent of meeting. And this chapter is also dealing with the, the consecration and initiation into service of the Levites. Now, let me be clear. When I say the Levites, I'm not referring to the priests. Okay. By now, the tribe of Levi had been divided into two distinct groups. The priests, from whom came, uh, rather, all of these were provided by Aaron's clan. And then the Levites, who represent the remainder of all the other Levite clans. The Levites were essentially the blue-collar workers who reported to the priests. Now, the altar of burnt offering in the menorah had to be serviced twice a day. And the common element between both of these was that a fire had to be continually burning. But now let me be clear. All of the branches of the menorah were only lit during hours of darkness. They did not burn 24 hours a day. When we look in the Talmud, we will find, and, I, and how far back this goes, I'm not sure, that the far western branch of, of, um, of the menorah was kept lit at all times, and that fire used to light all the rest. But that had to come from some kind of a tradition because there's certainly nothing mentioned about it at all in the Bible. Okay. The altar 
did not have a flaming fire burning 24 hours a day. After a day's worth of sacrifices ended, the coals were banked so that there would be hot coals remaining so they could kindle the morning's fire. And an interesting instruction here, of course, is that the light of the menorah had to face forward. Now, recall that the menorah was a lampstand, a big one, right, that held seven lamps, seven oil lamps. It didn't use candles. Okay. What's this purpose? Speaking about making the lights face forward. Well, apparently, the shape of the oil lamps allowed the light to be directed or focused more towards one direction than another. And the importance of the light going forward was so it would shine upon the table of showbread, which was on the wall opposite. Here's the menorah. Here's the wall opposite from it, the table of showbread. Okay. The menorah was symbolic of the light, the or, in Hebrew, of God. The table of showbread with its twelve loaves of bread, symbolizing the twelve tribes of Israel, was only to operate in the light of God's presence. Now, verse 5 begins to recall that the Levites were separated from the other tribes of Israel. They, They had replaced the purpose and status of all the firstborns of Israel. Now, this is something that we really need to drill into our minds so that we can understand all that's going to happen in the Bible from this point forward, especially as concerns prophecy. The Levites were no longer a normal part of Israel. They were no longer even counted as among the Israelites. The earlier census of the Levites, as apart from the census of the Israelites, was meant to demonstrate this important God principle. Certainly the Levites remained racial Hebrews, and they operated to the welfare of Israel. But they would no longer call themselves Israelites, nor would God consider them as such. Now what we see happening here is that the Levites are to be cleansed, purified to initiate their service as a set-apart group of Hebrews assigned the duty of serving God by means of serving God's priesthood. Notice that it is Moses that is directed to perform this ritual, not a priest. Once the priests are consecrated, then Moses won't be performing any more of these rituals, by the way. Now, It is standard for purification rituals that water is used. Now, I don't mean to to parse words. But this is not the same thing as happened in the ordination of the priests. As I mentioned in an earlier lesson, I think it was this one, a dedication or, or consecration to God ritual always involved anointing with oil. And this ritual upon the Levites was merely to cleanse and to purify them sufficiently so that they could operate around and near the sanctuary area. But the Levites were not permitted inside of any of the the sacred areas and they were not permitted to conduct any of the sacred rituals so they didn't have to be granted the highest level of holiness as was bestowed to the priests. The water of purification used on the Levites was the same kind of water that was used to purify a person who had touched a dead body. It was that water that was mixed with ashes of the red heifer. Which means that a red heifer ceremony had to have already happened. So this is not the same thing as what the Bible calls holy water. Last lesson we discussed that when the term holy water is used, it's actually synonymous with the term living water, mayim haim. Okay? Living water is water from a running spring or a, a spring-fed pond or a river. Okay? Holy water generally indicates 
that the living water has been put into a giant copper laver that resided in the temple court. It was what the priests drew from to wash their hands and feet before and during rituals. Holy water then was just one of the two required ingredients to make the water of purification, the other ingredient being the ashes of the red heifer. Now in verse 7, it says that one of the requirements was that they had to have a razor gone over their body. Now, this instruction is widely misunderstood. First of all, remember this only applies to males. Because only male Levites could be in in service to God. Second, a razor is just a term that means a sharp object used to cut hair. They weren't shaving, per se, like we think of today. Shaving as we think of today, which means to remove hair to the point that only the skin beneath of it shows, that wasn't part of Hebrew society. Third, the call to take a razor to the whole body is a euphemism that simply means to cut the hair of their heads because the hair of the head sits atop the whole body like a crown or a covering. Now, the Levites were also to wash their clothing. Let's be clear. In addition to all this, they too were to fully bathe in water because that's just standard purification procedure. Now, it's interesting to me that the sectarian argument among Christians about baptism is whether sprinkling is acceptable or to be baptized as full immersion is necessary. I'm getting some good stares now. Now, the argument generally stems from these verses that we read that the Levites were to be sprinkled, it says, right here. Again, the sprinkling is only the standard procedure for applying the water of purification, which is water mixed with ashes of the red heifer. It's not intended It's not the same thing as immersion in a river or a mikvah, ritual bathing, which, of course, is immersion in living water with no ashes in it. Two different things. Sprinkling only happens when a person is being purified from a severely unclean state, usually brought about by touching a dead body. Ritual bathing, on the other hand, is always the final step and being brought back to a clean state from any kind of state of uncleanness. But immersion is also about restoration and renewal. Which being sprinkled with water and this ashes concoction is not. In other words, this argument between sprinkling and immersion is, is bogus. It's just groundless. Because from a scriptural standpoint, they're two totally different procedures for different purposes. Well, next, after two bulls are offered on behalf of the entire community, the entire community of the Levites, rather, verse 10 tells us that the Israelites were to lay their hands on the Levites. And this was to be done, it says, before the Lord. And as we discussed earlier, before the Lord simply means to take place in the front of or near the tabernacle the dwelling place of the Lord. Not inside the tent. Certainly not inside the Holy of Holies. Now, obviously, two million or so Israelites didn't lay their hands on the Levites. It was the elders, the lay leaders from each tribe that laid their hands on the Levites. Now, why did the Israelites do that? What's the meaning of this? See, this is a typical act that indicated substitutionary sacrifice. The Levites were being offered, as we read in this chapter, as a substitution. They were to be in place of all the Israelite firstborns. Rather than all Israel, or more accurately, the firstborns of Israel, being in direct obligation to God for service, they were replaced by the Levites. This laying on of hands indicated both that the Levites were the sacrifice 
for the redemption of the Israelite firstborns, and it was a transfer of responsibility from the twelve tribes to this set-apart tribe of Levi. Now, the Hebrew word that's being applied in this laying on of hands and substitution function of the Levites is Kippur. And in its broadest sense, Kippur means atonement. Now, the form of the word Kippur is used in these passages adds the preposition all, A-L. Thus, the best translation of all Kippur into the modern English thinking would be on behalf of. On behalf of. Just as the bulls are the Kippur, the atonement, on behalf of the Levites, so are the Levites the Kippur, the atonement, on behalf of the Israelite firstborns. Yet we can only take that analogy so far because certainly the Levites aren't going to become an altar sacrifice, are they? Thus, since in the strictest sense, God does not ask for or tolerate actual human sacrifice, verse 12 has the Levites, follow this, right after they've had hands laid on them, they turn around and lay their hands upon the head of the two bulls. Again, not every Levite, probably just the heads of the clans. So now, the Levites have taken that sacrificial responsibility laid upon them by Israel and transferred that to the bulls who will be slaughtered and burned. Now, this means that while the biblical sense of the word Kippur kind of means atonement, that's not all that it means. Kippur also carries with it this sense of payment, of ransom, which is expressed in the word kapara, which is an offshoot of Kippur. Now, as with most of Christendom, many years ago, when I ventured first in the Old Testament and ran across things like what we've just read today, I just kind of rolled my eyes at all this primitive behavior. I feel quite differently about it now. We can scoff all we want at this procedure where the Israelites make the Levites their substitute payment, atonement, and then the Levites turn around and make the bulls their substitute payment, atonement. But we really ought to be thankful instead. Because this is a picture and a demonstration of God's justice system at work. It was that precise system based on substitution, payment, and atonement that made Yeshua legally able to do everything that was needed to satisfy God as concerned our sin and iniquity before him. We'll continue this chapter next week.